Last year there were 47,999 calls for the emergency ambulance service in the Dublin area, 12,000 of which were answered by the Eastern Health Board Ambulance Service in the south of the city, but the majority of the calls, 35,000 in all, were answered by the ambulances of the Dublin Fire Brigade. The service itself is taken for granted by most of us. The only time that public attention is focused on it is when there's a delay in reaching an accident or when the ambulance personnel are criticised. By and large, the service throughout the country goes unnoticed. But what is it like for the ambulance men themselves? To answer that question, I spent the longest and hardest shift with the crew of the ambulance attached to the Fibsborough Fire Station on the north side of Dublin. The shift begins at 6 o'clock on one evening and finishes 16 hours later at 10 o'clock the following morning. It is known as Saturday night and Sunday morning. When I arrived at the station, the officer in charge, Chief Officer Mooney, told me that we would have an easy task to begin with. Being in radio contact, she's going out at the moment now just to uh, change a car. That's why there's just an ordinary delay. It's not a, a rush job. They're changing the car back to their original vehicle, which was repaired in Tara Street yesterday. So, um, Chief Mooney, will you introduce me now to the ambulance crew who will be with me for the, for the rest of the night, or rather I'll be with them rather than they with me? Well, the two men that you have tonight is a driver, Paul Carey, Hello, that's Paul him there, Carey. and a uh, man accompanying him will be Paddy Dunn. Hello Paddy, how, how are, are you? you? How are you? Are you looking forward to a quiet night, lads? Hopefully. Oh, so you never know what might happen. <laughs> Right, we'll see you when we come back. Bye-bye. But even before we left the station, a call came in and we answered. Lads, I take it we're postponing picking up the other ambulance until we do this call. Is that the message? That's, That's the it, message yeah. now, yeah. Ambulance call uh, takes first preference. Do you know what kind of an emergency it is you're going to? Have you any code for that? Um, well, sometimes now you'd be given the nature of a case. It depends on who rings it in, like the person who's ringing it in. If they're panicky at all, like they'll just give the address. Sometimes, you know, they'll give you, they, they might give you the name of the road, they won't give you the area it's in, like, you know, so you have to follow it up on the maps in the control room and that, so. Um, that's basically it, you know. I mean, as you heard there, we were due to go over and change the ambulance there, and in the meantime, another call came through for uh, an, ac an accident over of Castle Kevin. And the Castle Kevin is not actually our area, but once the ambulance in that area is on call, already, on call yeah. yeah, well, they send the next nearest ambulance, which is us at the moment, obviously. Well, it didn't take us long to get the first call anyway, did it? No, you know, usually it's Saturday night now, you know, you're fairly, you're kept going, like, you know. What happens when you get to uh, the scene of the accident? What do you have to do? Well, we have to, first of all, um, 
see see what's exactly has happened like you know i mean with a car accident or somebody knocked down usually you find that there's a crowd around or that you know so a fair idea you know the road being blocked and that you know give a fair idea of what the case might be you know sometimes you find that it can be a lot more serious than what you would imagine in the first instance but uh other times can be lucky in our case and find out that it's not all that bad really like you know um so say you were saying earlier on do we know like beforehand like what the case is like sometimes sometimes you do other times you, you haven't a clue what to expect you know you just have to be prepared to, to, to meet anything like you know are the crowds a nuisance yeah particularly i find now in town crowds can be a nuisance because well in town like you can get a lot more people than out in sort of suburbia so to speak you know yeah. and uh, they can be a hindrance you know particularly young people young kids are that now you know uh, really like if there's a, a policeman there on patrol or that it's up to him to make sure that the crowd is out of the way where we can sort of straight ahead yeah where we can um work at ease like you know because we need plenty of room to work on that you know with stretchers and that so but even for experienced ambulance crews finding a destination in the maze of new estates in suburban dublin can be a problem i've surely said right but i'm nearly sure it's left now myself you know in fact, I don't think there is a right turn further on, you know. I'll just check this road here. Excuse me, now we're past the Kevin Road. Is. Thank you. Dead on. Go bang on, buddy. Little girl has just been brought into the back of the ambulance. She's obviously in distress. I'll back down. You can get out. You can What's, what's the problem, Paul? Uh, she fell, she hurt her shoulder. And she also is an epileptic, you see. Three forward control, over. Left or right? Get out. Go left, go left. Three forward control, over. Go ahead, three forward. We're on our way to Santa Street now, over. Paul, why why are you going to Temple Street? As a child and dad. Uh, she's not over twelve, you know. Bring her to a child's children's hospital, you know. Well, are they on call all the time? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, we we go to Blanchestown right. if it was an adult, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Children's hospital on call all the time. Now we've arrived at Temple Street Hospital, and uh, the young girl is just being brought in now to casualty. Okay. Good night. Where are we going now, lads? Paris Street to change the ambulance. Get back our own. Like are you happy you're in your own ambulance? Oh, yeah, it's really oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a newer, it's a newer ambulance than this, you know. And I think these are really only for for taking Spares. over where the good good ambulances go in for services and that. Right. They've put on the road for a couple of days to take their place, you know. Here in the control room of Tara Street, all the ambulances are controlled from here, and this is the central dispatch point where 3-4, the ambulance which we are on tonight, uh, will be called 
and uh, Sub-Officer McKenna is on the night shift here. How busy has it been so far? Exceptionally busy, since 1800 hours. How many calls have you had? Uh, since 1800 hours, why? we've had uh, 18, 18 calls so far. Does it look like being a busy night? Yes, it looks like being a busy night. Uh, usually the weekends is pretty busy. It would take a few minutes to change ambulances, and while I waited, I asked Tom Brady, the Chief Ambulance Officer of the Eastern Health Board, where the responsibility for the emergency ambulance service rested. Well, the responsibility or authority for having an ambulance service rests with the Health Board. Within that authority, in the Dublin city and county context, the Dublin Fire Brigade provide an ambulance service on an agency basis for the Eastern Health Board who carry the responsibility for funding that service. It is the service in the Dublin area which responds initially to an emergency call and provides ambulances at several locations throughout the city. In the same area, the Dublin the Health Board provides its own ambulance service which looks after the general and total content of ambulance work uh, from the normal routine home to hospital right through all other emergencies that may occur uh, including a cardiac service. Now the cardiac service that you have sometimes when people make a 999 call um, they don't always get a fire brigade ambulance sometimes they get an Eastern Health Board ambulance and sometimes both. Now how is that? When uh, a person makes a 99 call for an ambulance service, that call terminates in the Dublin Fire Brigade Control Centre. If the controller on duty is made aware that, or has reason to believe that a cardiac uh, incident has occurred, he has the authority to alert the cardiac service, which will then respond from the health board service. He may also, because of operational problems or in order to ensure a fast response to the particular incident, uh, divert one of his own units to the particular incident to await the arrival of the cardiac unit. With the changeover complete, we intended to go back on station to our home base in Fibsborough. The dispatcher, however, had other work for us. We're now coming up to the intersection of O'Connell Bridge, and as you can hear, the ambulance is just putting on its siren, trying to weave through the heavy night traffic, mostly people going to the cinema or theatre. And we are told that uh, there's scalding involved. It's a public house on the uh, north side of the Liffey. We're through O'Connell Street now and on our way down the Liffey. Just coming up now to Capel Street Bridge, over the bridge and on up. We're going at a fair speed now. But not all emergencies are matters of life and death. Some, as in this case, are trivial. So, having delivered the young woman to the James Connolly Memorial Hospital in Blanchardstown, which is the hospital on call for the north side of the city, we then headed back to our station in Fibsborough. It is now nine o'clock, and it's the first time we've been back at base since we left it at a quarter past six. The crew have to catch up on some paperwork. Okay. Just uh, log it all on the ambulance sheet and in the book. The occurrence book, you know, just for records. You know, the name, the name of the person, the address if you have it. Sometimes you don't have the name because you're just a bit unknown. The times, the time you arrived at the hospital. You know, 
type of uh, incident, age group, male, female, injuries, cause and treatment. The crew of Ambulance 3-4 are firemen who happen to be on ambulance duty tonight and when they get a chance they like to join the rest of their comrades in banter, especially at mealtimes. Here we are in the canteen and uh, the chef is standing right beside me. Chef? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they, they told me he was the chef. What's on the menu? There's a chicken curry tonight on the menu, Eamon. Keep the men happy at their work. Do you do the cooking all the time? I do, indeed, Eamon. We tell them Paul there, the man that's on the ambulance with you, and the other man that does it, George Keane, he's out on leave at the moment. God, I must say, it looks fantastic, all right. <laughs> this is Mustafa. This is a foreign, foreign fireman. Well, we're 250, you go, Eamon. <laughs> well, I'll tell you when I eat it. <laughs> Well, just as we sat down to eat the meal, the bleeper is gone for the ambulance, so we're just going down now uh, to get onto the ambulance and go away and see what the call is. It's unfortunate, I just had the first mouthful of curry, and it was delicious. I hope it's kept warm. Have we any idea what it is? I wouldn't say it's anything very serious, because they've been sent over from the matter of the And now Jagarda Station. Oh, I see, yes. It happens regular. Hacking with some friends, messing with some friends, and just hit my knee. Off the pole. Is it bad? I just saw. So, I can't drive on it. I tried to get an ambulance. Did you go to the matter? Yeah. But as they're not on call, they can't see to anybody. And they suggest I call an ambulance. That's what you did. It will take nearly half an hour of ambulance time to take this casualty to Blanchardstown and return to base. The crews have no discretion. They must answer every call and bring those who called to hospital, no matter how slight the injury. This abuse of the service is a cause of concern, as Dr Robert McQuillan, a consultant in casualty care in one of Dublin's leading hospitals, points out. There is no doubt there are a number of people who tend to call the ambulance themselves. They don't need the ambulance. They might be using it as a cheap means of transport to get them closer to home because they know the hospital on call is 100 yards from where they live, perhaps. And this is a very frequently, a very frequent abuse. And there are other abuses of the ambulance services. It is quite often seen people who are drunk who will call an ambulance purely for transport. Most ambulance personnel in the country are trained at the Central Ambulance Training Centre at St Mary's Hospital in the Phoenix Park. It is a rigorous and intense six-week course. We joined the recruits who were about to take part in a major accident emergency exercise. What we have outside is a, an accident involving a vehicle, an old ambulance that has been converted into a minibus with a number of patients on it. It has veered off the road, crashed in amongst some trees out there. The casualties have been thrown out of the, the vehicle scattered around, some might be wandering around. It's your job now to find the casualties, examine them, treat them for his injuries, put them on stretcher, wheelchair or whatever, collect them, speak to the medical officer outside there, tell them what you have, what, what you've found, what's wrong with your patient. You bring the patient through the gate out there, around the building to the fire door over at the far corner, and up the stairs to the library room, where we've done all the group sessions. All right? 
Okay, just stand through there now until we have the patient. Because in the end, gentlemen, your casualties will be examined. You will be criticised as to what you've done, what you haven't done, by an independent assessor. Uh, we keep it as pleasant as possible, but uh, no feelings will be spared if necessary. Understood? One other thing, for non-fire brigade personnel, there are smoke bombs out there. Do not handle them after they have been lit. One of the people taking this course is Jerry Hargan, well-known Dublin fullback. Jerry, a different role for you tonight. Yeah, this is indeed, yeah. It's a different role. I'm looking forward to it. Except uh, for the lads, we've trained for the past six weeks here, and we're all looking forward to going out to see what we can do. Are you as nervous as this, as you would be before an All-Ireland? I'd rather play a football match, all right. Yeah, I'd rather <laughs> <laughs> than go out, and, uh, go out and face what I have to face here tonight. But uh, it's enjoyable. I'll enjoy it. So I'm looking forward to it. As much as you would a football match? Uh, it's hard to say. I'll tell you afterwards. <laughs> okay. Outside here in front of us, the arc lights are being done to the simulated accident. There is a supposed minibus over there amongst the trees. It's a very cold September, uh, November night. Um, what's the next move now, Tom? The next move, the casualties, as you saw inside, have all been dressed and have, are carrying all the signs of simulated injuries. Some of them will be just as simple as fainting. Some of them will be hysterical. Other will have fractures protruding, guts, uh, bones protruding, and heart attacks and all the rest of it. These people are supplied by the casualty union who specialize in simulating any symptoms of any injury to a frighteningly accurate degree. They're now going to be placed uh, in various situations, mostly obscure, where they allegedly have been thrown from the crashed vehicle. Some of them will be placed in, their, in and under the vehicle and in a few moments when we have them placed, the students will be released as if they were coming in ambulances to the scene and they will be required to find the casualties to assess their severity and treat in a priority basis the most severe, severely injured. Hello, what's, what's supposed to have happened to you? Uh, burns on the hands and the face. Second degree burns on the hands. Second degree burns. Yeah. They look very realistic. Uh, yeah. How do you manage that? Uh, it's a coating of red stick on it. Oh, That's the smoke, of course, coming from the smoke bombs. We are now right in the heart of the casualty area, and the smoke is coming from the smoke bombs, which have been let off. As you can imagine, visibility is down to a minimum. Any minute now, you heard the whistle in the background. Any minute now, the teams will come rushing in to try and, first of all, find the casualties, and then, having found them, to deal with them. When the exercise begins, the members of the casualty union play their part and bring a startling reality to the chill November night. As the exercise continues, supervisors move around the operational area, observing and questioning the trainees. Did you do an examination? We gave him a slight examination. We're just going to put him a on the slight examination. You think that's adequate enough and turn around and remove the patient? And make him yeah. more But like if there are injuries there that you haven't found, movement is going to cause further problems, so isn't it? We checked his back and there was no injuries. He's going around just yeah. to get a quick check. How do you know? We 
Right, he just fell around. When the exercise is over, the various teams stand with their respective patients and the critique begins. The external examiner is introduced by the chief ambulance officer, Tom Brady. I have some comments which I would rather pass privately to the instructors at a later stage, and I'm sure they'll pass it maybe slightly, not so privately, to some of the students over the next few days. Uh, the prime aim of this today, or tonight, was to test your skill and what you've learned over the last four and a half weeks. There are exactly one and a half weeks left to exams, chaps. And we pro propose, excuse me, to tell you what you haven't done tonight. And the purpose of it, I hope nobody is offended personally, the purpose of your criticism will be aimed at ensuring that you pass your exams and become fully qualified ambulancemen on Friday, 6th of December, which is D-Day as far as you're concerned. At this stage, I'll hand you back to your casualty receiving officer, Sergeant Major Fagan, and he will introduce our critic, uh, Jerry Shortall, from the Casualty Union, who will pass blatant comment on some of your misdemeanours tonight. Very good. Thank you very much, Mr. Brady. Mr. Shortall needs no introduction to most people. He is very much in involved with the people that we classify as casualties. Almost real, that's what they were tonight. So the Casualty Union deserves a very good vote of thanks. Uh, Without further ado, Jerry, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Sergeant Major. A um, couple of patients that I did observe very carefully, and I'll just go through one or two of them. The first one is sitting, or lying, should I say, in front of me. He's the chap who has a spinal injury. First of all, he's left for about 10 minutes before anybody bothered their head to go near him. On top of that, apart from that, he was literally the first one you would see as you went in onto the site. He was one of the nearest ones to you. They... Uh, when you did get around to him, the handling was something that left a lot to be desired. When it came, you brought along an ordinary stretcher, although there were two um, spinal stretchers in the ambulance or in the wagon. And on top of that, then when you went to lift him, you lifted him up to literally standing height. And the body was literally going something like that. It's an absolutely appalling lift. I mean, I reckon the man was dead ten times over by the time you put him back down. When you were carrying him in and carrying up the stairs, the stretcher went virtually, you know, from side to side. It was banged off the walls, banged off the corners when you came up, and, uh, you know, certainly uh, I wouldn't give much chance for the patient's uh, chances at this stage. This kind of training and criticism is designed to instil in the crews a sense of dedication to and responsibility for the casualties they will be handling, and it stands them in good stead when they are faced with real situations such as the one we were faced with at 10 o'clock on Saturday night. We had responded to a call from a monastery where an elderly priest was having severe respiratory problems. We have oxygen. The old priest is bent double in his efforts to gasp air and is extremely frightened and refuses to be moved without oxygen. The crew haul the oxygen equipment up the narrow stairway to his room. He's uh, obviously suffering from asthma or something, or something else. 
باشه you can't get him to relax to get him on the chair to get him down the stairs and we just have to take our time we're giving him oxygen at the moment and moving him every couple of minutes and that's it and just try him that's all it'll take <laughs> you know and get him straight out of Blanchestown I suppose once we get him into the ambulance well once we get him into the ambulance he's grand because we got a wheelchair in the Blanchestown and it'll be easy enough to get him in there but it's getting him to the ambulance is the problem it is a slow and tedious process and takes nearly three quarters of an hour to get the priest eventually to the ambulance. But the patient's fear of lack of oxygen continues, even when we reach the hospital. That's quite right, Father. Yeah. We'll have to get some type of oxygen there. So the we, can't, we haven't been able to come yeah. to you. Yeah, I'll go one to ten Just just try to I prefer By now it is half past eleven and the fallout from the pubs of the city is manifested in the increase in calls. We respond to one in Cable Street. What happened to her? She fell and hit her head again. Alright? Yeah. Okay. Alright, we're What's the situation, Patty? Situations. She's uh, she was obviously on her way home, and uh, whoops, she fell, hit her head off the curb, and she has a bit of a gash at the back of her head. That will probably need stitches. Um, really, the best thing to do would be keep her comfortable and keep a bandage on her head. the blood from flowing, you know. She's also had a few drinks alright, you know, so basically lie on her side and uh so if she does if she does vomit at least it's not at least it's not gonna catch in her throat, you know, so there's no danger there, you know. It comes as a shock to many casualties and friends alike that although there are hospitals nearer to the accident, the ambulance must bring them to the hospital on call, which in this case is Blanchardstown. There's not an awful lot that we can do about it, you know. Well, there's a park and yeah, Exactly. Exactly. 
know what I mean? We've been at a hospital in five minutes. Right, well I mean, there I'll give you an example tonight and we've got two people who tried to get into the Manor Hospital. Not serious, I mean they actually made it into the hospital themselves, like one had an injured yeah. knee and they sent him from the, the security man on the gate who has probably his orders from the head sister or matron or whoever in the hospital in the Manor. And the key sent him over to ring for an ambulance in the Mount, Mount Joy Garda Station, you know. But we have to, we're sort of governed by rules and regulations as well, like, you know, so. It is a hardship for many people who, having been discharged from hospital at night, find themselves with no means of transport other than a taxi, which can be very expensive. I put this point to Tom Brady. Within the Dublin uh, city area, the eight major hospitals provide uh, an accident and emergency rota system. Within this system, uh, hospitals are designated as the on-call hospital for a particular day. And those hospitals are then staffed up to be able to cater for whatever serious incident is brought to them. Uh, that ensures that all the full backup team, surgeons, uh, radiographers, whatever other blood sampling uh, routines are necessary, are available, are immediately available when a serious incident is brought to them. And it wouldn't be possible for all the hospitals to, be, to provide that level of service at all times. But isn't it a bit silly to pass one hospital if you have a severe coronary, for example? Isn't it a bit silly to pass one hospital and go seven miles on further along the road? I mean, surely there must be some happy medium. Well, again, as I said, the receiving hospital on the roster may not necessarily be seven miles away. It would, that would be the odd case in which the distance would be involved. Distance in an ambulance which it's using its audio and visual equipment is relatively short space of time and the beneficial effect at the other end of the journey is that the appropriate level of medical and nursing attention is waiting for the casualty and therefore the casualty will receive the best available care. The, any time lost in the journey would be more than offset uh, by time that might be lost in calling in off-duty hospital staff in another hospital. The fact that ambulances may have to pass other hospitals to bring a patient in cardiac arrest to the hospital on call is not justified in the view of casualty consultant Robert McQuillan. I think there's absolutely no justification in this and it leads to extreme frustration for the ambulance men if they have to drive past the hospital with a patient that they are resuscitating to go to another hospital perhaps eight or ten minutes further away. This, to put it bluntly, is really a debt sentence for the patient concerned. All studies done on cardiac arrest in patients in the community emphasize the importance of speed. The ambulance must be able to get to the scene as quickly as possible and get the patient to hospital as quickly as possible and to the nearest hospital. Um, just to sort of illustrate this point, in uh, various studies done in the States, they have found that the survival rate of patients who have cardiac arrests can be increased from about 15% to 50% with two main factors. One, one, a greater awareness of the public 
for what they should do in case of cardiac arrest and their ability to initiate cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And two, better trained ambulance personnel who have the correct equipment arriving at the scene as quickly as possible. But the 16-hour shift continues and it's on this call that the real true value of the ambulance service can be measured. Well, we've barely arrived back in the station. It's 10 to 1 in the morning and we're going out again. Where are we going to this time, Paul? Carnival uh, Road, Kilbarrick. No indication of what it is yet, no? No, no. picked up the little child now and it's in the back. We've also alerted Temple Street that we're on our way. How long will it take us to get there, Paul? Uh, I won't take 10 minutes less. 3, 4. About 10 minutes or so or less, you know. 3, 4. 3, 4, go ahead. What's the nature of the problem there? Uh, the child is gasping for breath. I don't know exactly what is wrong with the child. Over. Try to try the breath out. You've got an oxygen. Yeah. Good old 3-4. We have Temple Street time, boy, for you now. What age is the child 3-4? 36 years of age, over. Here's 6 years, Roger. Thank you. He just lost a breed and he did, you know. And he's never sick. He never had one of them before. Definitely, you know. But uh, I knew when I seen it was an asthma attack, you know. But he's never sick. When we arrive at Temple Street Hospital, a doctor and nurses are already standing by to do what they can for the casualty. He didn't. Um, when we got there, he was beginning to get his colour back. But I believe he went blue in the face. You know. It's 10 to 3 on Sunday morning and we're sitting here watching a video of Elvis Presley as you gather in the background. Paul, do you often get a chance to have a break like this? Well, it would be 3 o'clock in the morning before you would. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> no, how you do, you get the odd breaks, all right. But at this hour of the morning, you have a chance of saying something on the telly. No. Paddy, Will it be as quiet as this for the rest of the night, do you think? Uh, I doubt it. I, around now it begins to quieten all right, like, you know, but you get the odd dart here and there, if you know what I mean. But uh, from one o'clock onwards, you'd be inclined to take a chance of maybe getting your head down, you know, but you know, sooner you get your head down, we'd be out again, like, you know. <laughs> happens so many times. You just don't take the chance, you know. Well, I'd say when this finishes now in about five or ten minutes, we'll put the heads down, what? <laughs> we'll chance it down, yeah. <laughs> you 
It's 20 past three in the morning and we've decided to try and have a sleep. If anything happens, the alarm will go off in this, the ambulance room, and we'll hear it and be up and away in minutes. So, it's good night. It's five o'clock in the morning and the alarm has just gone and we're now going down to the ambulance to get in and I don't know what the call is yet until we get downstairs. Where are we going, Paul? Inside the grounds of Cabo Hospital. Whatever that is now. And so on it went throughout the night. It was difficult for me as an outsider to make an evaluation of the emergency service, so I decided to ask an expert, Dr Robert McQuillan. It is unique service. I mean, we must bear in mind that this 999 service is unique to these islands. It is totally free to everyone use it. I mean, even including the phone call, that's totally free. And um, we also have to bear in mind that these are firefighters who are primarily joined the service to fight fires, who have also been trained to man ambulances and take care of patients. And because they're, perhaps their primary emphasis is to fighting fires, some of them maybe are not quite as dedicated or as committed or interested as they could be. But the vast majority from what we see here are excellent, and some of them are absolutely superb. And I would have nothing but praise to their, for their dedication um, to this cause. Um, they need more support. They need better equipment, more up-to-date training, carried out more regularly by people who are interested in particularly cardiopulmonary resuscitation or all forms of trauma. Part of the hazard in driving an ambulance through Dublin is the fact that the ambulance drivers themselves are responsible in law and if they have a crash they are subject to the full rigour of the law the same as you or I. But that is not the way it is in the United States of America where they have a sophisticated traffic system for the ambulance service. Oh yes, the, the route the ambulance is going to take from their central station to the house is put into the computer and this will automatically change the lights in advance of the ambulance so they can guarantee they're going to arrive there very rapidly. Um, we're a long way from this sophistication and um, this is obviously one of the main causes for delay which perhaps we could do something about but um, that's a, a matter more or less for the ambulance personnel themselves. I couldn't advise on that. The most common hazard faced by ambulance crews is the wear and tear on their nervous systems. In this job, they have to deal with all kinds of situations, ranging from the ridiculous to the very serious. They are the ones who have to pick up the dead bodies. I asked the two lads, Paddy Dunn and Paul Carey, over a cup of tea after the shift had finished, if it did get them down. I don't let it affect me, because if you were to do that, you wouldn't be in the job. You know, it doesn't really affect me, does it? Not that I'm hard or anything. I mean, I feel for people and that, but uh, I don't bring it home with me. So it doesn't really affect me to that extent, you know. Does it affect you, Paddy? Well, I find, oh, I found, say, now in the beginning, it took me the best part of a year and a half, I think, really, to become accustomed to the ambulance and that. Now, not saying like every night we had bad accidents where you just eventually the job got to you, like, you know. No, um, it doesn't get to me anymore to say you become accustomed to it, like, you know. Then, like, if I wasn't in this particular job at the moment, 
I wouldn't see half the sights I see, so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't even think about it, you know. But that's the way you sort of begin to, you switch off, like, you know. Anyway, apart from that, when you do get to a bad accident with that, like, it's a question of doing what the best you can. You don't sort of look at it from the point of view, like, uh, oh, God, like, you know, this is the last one I'm doing and I'm getting out and that's it, like, you know. I think everybody's the same starting off, really, like, it's, it's something completely new, like, it's a responsibility, like, it, but once you do your best, if you're quite satisfied with doing your best, whether the person survives, for instance, in a bad case, or whether he doesn't, like, if you're satisfied you've done your best, well, then that's it, like, you know, I mean, you can't perform miracles, you know. Perhaps they cannot perform miracles, but they do work efficiently. And the job also has a rewarding aspect, as the Chief Ambulance Officer Tom Brady told me. As far as being a rewarding service is concerned, um, I think any ambulance man who has successfully handled a major road accident or coronary case gets his own job satisfaction directly from that. Um, you know, for example, in that context, um, quite recently I was present in one of our ambulance bases when a lady who had been the victim of a, a road traffic accident arrived on base to seek out the ambulance man who had cared for her at the incident. In the particular incident I'm speaking about, the woman had, the ambulance man had suspected that the lady had a fracture of the cervical area and had treated her accordingly. And she had been transported safely on spinal board, suitably splinted, to the appropriate hospital. And some several weeks later, she was walking around satisfactorily in good health, whereas if he had made a mistake and had not recognised her symptoms as spinal, she, we would have had another paraplegic on our hands. And I think um, all of us, particularly the individual in concern in that incident, got complete and absolute satisfaction from that type of incident. It's 20 past 10 on Sunday morning. Outside, it's a bright, cold, wintry day. The lads will have to be back on duty at 6 o'clock that evening. Now it's time to join their families. Well, I'll go home now, have my breakfast, round up all the kids, go to Mass, home, have your dinner, the football match after dinner, and uh, back to work at six. Will you get any sleep, Paddy? Oh, I intend going home now and getting two hours in at least, you know. Then head off to Mass, round up the kids in my case. <laughs> That's really it. Like, you know, I mean, the, the errors that you have, you don't really have that much. It's not really an awful lot of time, you know. Thanks very much indeed, lads. Very welcome. It's been an experience. <laughs> three four to control, over. Go ahead, three four. We're on our way to Tampa Street now, over. You're on your way to Tampa Street. Exceptionally busy since. 1800 hours. Acting with some friends, messing with some friends, and just hit my knee. We've received the message that the child we're going to pick up has just gone into an unconscious state, so the driver here beside me has pulled out all the stops, and I'm just putting on the safety belt. The Dublin Fire Brigade provide an ambulance service on an agency basis for the Eastern Health Board, who carry the responsibility for funding that service. What age is the child, 3-4? Six, six years of age, over. Six years, Roger, thank you. But, uh, I knew when I seen it was an asthma attack, you know. But he's never sick. I 
I'd rather play a football match. I was like, yeah, I'd rather <laughs> <laughs> than go out and uh, go out and face what I have to face here tonight. But uh, it's enjoyable. But a vast majority of them that we see here are excellent, and some of them are absolutely superb. And I would have nothing but praise to their for their dedication. Three four closing down. 